Precious God, as we turn to your word for us, may the Spirit of God rest upon us. Help us to be steadfast in our hearing, in our speaking, in our believing, and in our living. Amen. Our New Testament passage today comes from 2 Timothy 2 through 13. You then, my child, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and that you have heard from me through many witnesses in trust to faithful people who will be able to teach others as well. Share in suffering like a good soldier of Jesus Christ. No one serving in the army gets entangled in everyday affairs. The soldier's aim is to please the enlisting officer. And in the case of an athlete, no one is crowned without competing according to the rules. It is the farmer who does the work who ought to have the first share of the crops. Think over what I say, but the Lord will give you understanding in all things. Remember Jesus Christ, raised from the dead, a descendant of David, that is my gospel, for which I suffer hardship, even to the point of being chained like a criminal. But the word of God is not chained. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, so that they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The saying is true. If we have died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure, we will also reign with him. If we deny him, he will also deny us. If we are faithless, he remains faithful. The word of the Lord. Our second lesson is the seventh chapter of the book of Judges as we continue our investigation of the exploits and learnings of the judge Gideon from so long ago. Let us continue to listen for the word of God. Then Jeroboam, that is Gideon, and all the troops that were with him rose early and encamped beside the spring of Herod and the camp of Midian north of them below the hill of Morah in the valley. The Lord said to Gideon, The troops with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hand. Israel will only take the credit away from me, saying, My own hand has delivered me. Now therefore proclaim in the hearing of the troops, Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home. Thus Gideon sifted them out. Twenty-two thousand returned, ten thousand remained. Then the Lord said to Gideon, The troops are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will sift them out for you there. When I say this one shall go with you, he shall go with you. And when I say this one shall not go with you, he shall not go. So he brought the troops down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, All those who lap the water with their tongues, as a dog laps, you shall put to one side. All of those who kneel down to drink, putting their hands to their mouths, 
you shall put to the other side. The number of those that lapped was 300, but all the rest of the troops knelt down to drink the water. Then the Lord said to Gideon, With the 300 that lapped, I will deliver you and give the Midianites into your hand. Let all of the others go to their homes. So he took the jars of the troops from their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel back to their own tents, but retained the 300. The camp of Midian was below him in the valley. That same night the Lord said to him, Get up and attack the camp, for I have given it to your hand, into your hand. But if you fear to attack, go down to the camp with your servant Purah, and you shall hear what they say, and afterward your hand shall be strengthened to attack the camp. Then he went down with his servant Purah to the outpost of the armed men that were in the camp. The Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east lay along the valley as thick as locusts, and their camels were without number, countless as the sand on the seashore. When Gideon arrived, there was a man telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, I had a dream, and in it a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Midian and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell. It turned upside down and the tent collapsed. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, a man of Israel. Into his hand God has given Midian and all of the army. When Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and he said, Get up, for the Lord has given the army of Midian into your hand. After he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets into their hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside of the jars... He said to them, Look at me and do the same. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then you shall also blow the trumpets around the whole camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundreds who were with him came to the outskirts of the camp at the beginning of the middle watch, when they had just set the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the jars that were in their hands. So the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars holding in their left hands the torches and in the right hands their trumpets to blow. And they cried, A sword for the Lord and for Gideon. Every man stood in his place all around the camp, and all the men in camp ran. They cried out and they fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, the Lord set every man's sword against his fellow and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Beth Shittah toward Zerirah, as far as the border of Abel-Meholah by Tabith. And the men of Israel were called out from Naphtali and from Asher and from all of Manasseh, and they pursued after the Midianites. Then Gideon sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and seize the waters against them, as far as Beth Barah and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they seized the waters as far as Beth Barah, also the Jordan. They captured the two captains of, the Midian, of Midian, Oreb and Zeb, they killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb they killed at the winepress of Zeb, and they pursued the Midianites. They brought the heads of Oreb and Zeb to Gideon beyond the Jordan. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Fascinating account of the life of Gideon, the exploits of Gideon. I'm drawn to this Two characters in the Old Testament, and oddly enough, I'm dealing with both of them right now. Daniel at the adult class that begins at 8 o'clock on Sunday morning, and now Gideon in worship for this series of sermons. And I remembered as I was preparing this that these two men and their stories were uh, 
reduced to paintings in the junior department of my home church back in Canton, Mississippi. I can still see those two pictures. Gideon and his men descending the hills with the torches and they're blowing their trumpets, the shofars, the ram's horn, and the Midianite camp in disarray down in the valley. And then the image of Daniel in the lion's den, that was on another wall. So these have always been heroic and epic figures and people that I have been drawn to in the scriptures, but their stories have much to teach us with respect to how we remain faithful and obedient as God's people in our own time. In our first session together with Gideon, we looked at his self-image and his idea of service, and we saw that he had to have a complete reworking of his self-image and of his calling because God had appeared to him in the form of the angel, and he had addressed him saying, God is with you, you mighty warrior. Two things which Gideon really had a hard time accepting. The fact that God was with him because they were being oppressed and subject to the Midianites, thinking God had abandoned them when the reverse was true. They had abandoned God and they were getting the just desserts for the sins that they had committed, worshiping other gods. And then the idea that he was going to be a mighty warrior, as Bob reminded the children uh, he had nothing to commend him for military service. And yet, that's what a judge was back in those days. A judge wasn't a judicial figure. He was really a military leader. At any rate, he proved to be what God said he was going to be, a mighty warrior. And he, proved, and he learned after questioning it for some time that God was going to be with him. And God would deliver Israel through his hand, which we get to today in our story. The second story we looked at was called the fleece test. How do we verify that anything is of God, that God is calling us to engage in a particular mission or that this truth from God is to be believed, that God loves all of us, that God forgives us if we ask, that it's better to give than to receive, that it's better to love your neighbor, forgive those who wrong you? How can you test any of those things out? Well, you can't. You can trust and obey but you can't prove ahead of time that it's going to be successful, whatever it is that God is calling upon you to do. And we learn that you walk by faith, not by sight. You're not faithful because you understand the benefits of that. You're faithful because you're called to be faithful, whether you benefit from that or not. And also we learn that uh, it's truer to say that we believe and then we're able to understand than to say, if I only understand, then I will believe. Faith is not like, faith is not buoyed by proof. Hopefully it will lead to evidence when we're faithful that we can see things in a different light. But we have to choose whether or not we're going to believe. So this morning we come to a third episode in the life of Gideon, the actual attack on the Midianites and how God went about that. Um, it's a remarkable story. Gideon had recru recruited an army of about 35,000 to go against the 135,000 that were in the Midianite army, which included the people from the east and the Amalekites, all these desert tribes from the Arabian Peninsula and from the Syrian Peninsula. They had come, descended upon Israel at harvest season, were eating all their crops, taking all their animals. The Israelites had fled into hiding in the hills, and that's when Gideon is called to be the deliverer. But the Lord says to Gideon, you have too many people here. If you defeat the Midianites with this crowd, you're just going to take the credit for yourselves. You're going to think it's your own strength and prowess that led to your deliverance. 
It is not. If you are to be successful, you will have to depend upon me and trust me in this battle. Um, so Gideon saw his army reduced eventually to 300 people going against 135,000. Um, it's a remarkable story. And we have to ask, what does it mean for us in our time? Because you and I, in the church of Jesus Christ, is called of God and commissioned by Jesus to be liberators of people in our own time. Liberators of people from whatever shackles they have. Shackles of the mind or the body or the spirit. People are in bondage to all kinds of things. Ignorance, prejudice, disease, materialism. Homelessness, despair, guilt, prejudice, the list goes on and on. All of those things that are demonic and destroy the people of God. Things that you and I and the church of Jesus Christ are called upon to address for God's sake in order that he may redeem and claim his lost children. Paul writes to the Ephesians saying, Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil for our struggle is not against enemies of flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers of the present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now we have removed a lot of militaristic imagery from our hymnals and our, and our liturgy, but let us never forget that we are recruited into the Lord's band. And we are engaged in a warfare of its own, not a physical warfare, but a spiritual warfare against those forces that have captured the minds and hearts and lives and destroyed them of God's many children everywhere. What hope do we have in being a small number? Can we possibly make a difference? Can this congregation make a difference in the life of the old village, much less the life of the global village? We have more than 300, don't we? Closer to 3,000, although the session will reduce that number at its next meeting. But we have many more people. And I think the population of uh, Mount Pleasant just alone is something north of 85,000. So what can a group of 3,000 accomplish in a community of 85,000? Well, what could a group of 300 account, uh, accomplish against a force of 135,000? So what can we learn from this story of Gideon and his small band of 300 as they engage the enemies of God and try to liberate God's people from that which threatens their lives. To begin with, we need to remind, be reminded, as Gideon needed to be reminded, of whose we are and who we serve. Uh, if we're going to be victorious in the work God is calling us to do, it's going to depend on God. God's going to use us, but we are not the ones who will have the victories. And therefore, that's a good word because it reminds us that God is in charge. We're only instruments in God's hands. And so the future and the deliverance of God's people, while we should be faithful, it will succeed even if we fail because God's in charge. So our, our successes won't bring about God's success, although he will use us. And our failures won't prevent God from accomplishing what he wants to accomplish in the world. But God wants to use us. That's why we've been recruited. That's why you're in the church, whether you know it or not. If you're in the church for what you can get out of it, you've misunderstood your calling. If you're a member of the church, it's because God has recruited you to put you to work. 
You're to serve others and to serve God. That's our reason for being as a Christian church. What the Israelites needed to learn was not just that they needed deliverance. They needed to know who their deliverer was. They, it wasn't just redemption they needed from the Midianites. They needed a knowledge of their redeemer. And so too do we. God knew well the human heart. He knew that if they went up against even a larger force, but with a group of 32,000, they might end up being farther away from their God after the battle than before because they would think, well, we are the ones who defeated Midian. Nope, that was God's doing. And they could end up farther away from God at the end, after their victory, than they were before. So just we should keep in mind, the battles that we are waging are God's battle. He is simply using us as his instruments. And may he continue to do so. The mission of the church is God's mission. God is waging war against all of those forces, seen and unseen, that plague his people, that rob them of the life abundant and eternal that he intends for all of his children. There is reason to take heart when we realize that God is in charge and we are not. That's a comfort as you go up against forces that seem to be opposed to God. We are simply called to be faithful, not successful. God will take care of the success. We are responsible for the faithfulness. And it doesn't depend, our victories don't depend on the numbers or the odds because God's in charge. And God can be entrusted with our lives, with the future of our church and our world. So we're less likely to despair, I think, in our individual lives and in our church life if we realize that this is God's business we're about. We are only a small part of the puzzle that God is using. Who could have imagined that so few people could defeat such a large army. Well, who could imagine what everything this church could be doing if all of its members took seriously their commitment, their desire to be used of God in serving the world and others. So, first of all, we need to remember whose battles we're fighting and who's on our side because it doesn't matter who's on the other side if God is on the side of his people, the church. Sometimes it's, it's we who are opposed to God. We don't recognize what God is doing, and we need to do so. Secondly, we might notice that uh, when God begins to sift the crowd down, the, the army down to a, a size that he wants, he places a high premium on courage. He says to Gideon, just all of those who are afraid, all of those who are trembling, just let them go home. Tell them to go home. We don't need them. When he gave that invitation, if they were frightened, they could go home. 22,000 left. And Gideon was left with 10,000. The Lord still says, that's too many for the, for the uh, victory that I'm going to give you. So what happens after that? They do this arbitrary testing. I don't know if it's arbitrary or not. I can't figure out what this, this last test accomplished other than to reduce the size of the army. I guess they could have flipped coins or... God could have said, okay, everybody born on the second or the fourth, you can remain, everybody else leave. It's just a way to reduce the size of the army, but it may be more than that. It may be that the very way these men were drinking their water 
was indicative of their commitment to the mission before them and their single-mindedness in the service of God. Because those who got down on their knees, on their all fours, and lapped uh, the water, they couldn't keep watch. They couldn't keep their weapons in their hands. They could be distracted. The ones who simply cupped the water in their hands and drank it that way, only 300 of them, they were the ones who became the liberators. So single-mindedness is a priority in God's army. Are you committed to the cause of Jesus Christ and his church? Where does that fall on your priority list? Where is your commitment? How do you measure it? In the letter you'll receive from me this week, that's one of the things I'm asking of this congregation. I think we need to re-up our game. I think we need to recommit to the mission of Jesus Christ through the life and work of this congregation. We have far too many people in this church that are on the sidelines somewhere. And it's evident that that church is not a priority in their lives. Other things are. So we have to determine for ourselves, what do we really believe and why? And if we believe it, what are we going to do about it? We discussed in class last week this statement of faith that's going around the nation right now, reclaiming Jesus. You can Google that and read about it. And a number of Christian leaders from different denominations across the land are saying, this is what we believe, and because we believe this, this is what we oppose in life, in culture, in politics. You may not agree with it, but what would your statement of faith be? What is it that you believe, and because you believe this, you're not going to support this? You're going to live in a different way. Each of us has to do that in our own lives if we're going to get our priorities in order. Because, make no mistake about it, it requires courage if you're going to be used of God to make a difference in the world. If you intend to be a steward in an age of materialism, if you want to be a peacemaker in a day of alienation and distortion, if you want to be a defender of the poor, a protector of the weak, if you want to speak the truth in love to power, then that's going to be uh, require courage on your part. Great risk of being misunderstood, of being ridiculed, of being mocked. Service in God's army is not something for the faint-hearted. So just know that if you intend to be used of God in his service, courage is going to be required of you at some point. Paul reminds young Timothy in his letter to him, God did not give us a spirit of cowardice, but rather a spirit of power and love and self-discipline. So, where are your priorities? How do you intend to be involved in the life and work of Jesus Christ through this congregation? We can be encouraged that the faithful few in Israel, just 300 men who were courageous, defeated an army many times larger than them. And isn't it interesting how God brought about the victory? He told the, uh, Gideon to divide the 300 into three companies of 100 to surround the valley from the hills. And then at his command, they were to break the jars in which the torches were, raise the torches in one hand, and blow their horns in the other. What do you think that sounded like? Very much like that. That's a vavuzela from South Africa. But it sounds like a ram's horn. 
Can you imagine 300 of those charging down the mountains? You're in the valley beneath. What happened is the camp broke out into pandemonium. They started killing one another. The Amalekites were attacking the people of the east who were attacking the Midianites. And according to the next chapter, 120,000 of them are dead by the time they finished attacking one another in the middle of the night with the horns blowing and the torches descending from the hills. I don't think they even had weapons. If their hands were carrying the torch and the horn. Single-mindedness is important. If you're going to be used to make a difference, it's going to require some courage, some sacrifice on your behalf. It always has for God's people. It always will. So God needs some people who are single-minded, who understand life's priorities and faith's priorities. This reminds me of another soldier in the history of Israel. His name was Uriah. You may remember him. He was the husband of Bathsheba. David was on the roof of his palace one day. He sees the beautiful Bathsheba bathing nearby, and he desires her. So he arranges to have her brought to him. They have relations, and she ends up conceiving King David's child. So in order to cover his sin, he invites her husband home from the battlefield, Uriah. He came back home, and David is assuming, well, he'll go visit his wife, they'll have relations, and then my sin will be covered because the child she's carrying, everyone will believe that it's Uriah's child. But, of course, Uriah was too single-minded to give in to that. Uriah refused to go to his home and sleep with his wife or even eat or drink anything so long as his fellow soldiers were out in the field engaging in battle. So David sent him back to the battle and directed that he be put in the front of the battle, knowing that he would be killed in the process, which he was. So David actually ends up trying to cover his murder of Uriah because of his lust for Uriah's wife, Bathsheba. Single-mindedness. God can use some single-minded people. This congregation can be used in a mighty way, and I hope it is. You have new leadership coming in in the coming weeks and months. But now is a time where each household and each person has to decide, am I in it or out? If I'm in it, I'm going to be courageous, I'm going to be sacrificial. Am I going to engage in the work that God has given this church to do? Or am I going to sit back and just watch others do it? Let's hope and pray that you will engage and that you will find a way to serve in and through the life of this congregation to make a difference in the old village and the global village in which you are engaged. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen.